chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, there are great sacrifices that men have to make to preach. I had to give up a seven-month-old who was asleep in my arms just to come up here. I don't get that much anymore. You may have heard Leah trying to talk today, in Bible class especially, and if you pay close attention, she's saying, Dad, 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 Dad. That's totally beside the point. I just wanted to brag a little bit. Um, Today we are continuing a series we began last week. Last week we introduced this new series called Anothering. And it's a series in which we're going to examine the one another passages that appear in the New Testament. In fact, I noted last week that there are uh, over 90 different appearances of this phrase, one another, in the New Testament. And it's attached to 35 different actions or verbs throughout the New Testament. Last week, we began by looking at the command to love one another that appears particularly in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And this week, we're going to continue our study of these passages. Do you, you got to understand the importance of the one another passages. Because our emphasis thus far this year has been go and do. And it will continue to be that. But in these first few weeks, we've really put emphasis on going and doing within our community. And we will continue to have that emphasis, but we cannot neglect that going and doing also applies to one another. It applies to us within the body of Christ. There are things we are to go and do in relation to each other. And this morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, where we receive the instruction to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want us to consider what this one another passage is saying. How does it apply to you and I? But before we go very far, I want to just review the essentials of this passage. What does it mean to bear something? The action of bearing refers to the act of carrying or sustaining something that is heavy. So if, if I'm going to bear something, then that means I'm going to be willing to carry a heavy load. And I want you to notice in particular that Paul's not instructing us to bear our own burdens. He's instructing us to bear one another's burdens. This verse isn't about individual discipleship. It's about collective discipleship. Jesus said that in order to follow him, we would have to take up our cross and to follow him. That's an individual decision to follow Christ. But when we get to Galatians chapter 6, and Paul says, bear one another's burdens, he's putting a responsibility on you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying, here's your job toward one another. Paul's not talking here about an individual decision to become a follower of Christ. He's talking about a responsibility between brothers in Christ to help one another succeed 
as disciples. And what constitutes a burden? I like the definition given by another preacher. He said, a burden is anything that oppresses your brother or sister's walk in Christ. Anything that oppresses their walk. So anything that serves as an obstacle, anything that can be a hurdle or a hindrance, anything that keeps your brother or sister in Christ from maturing in their relationship with God, that constitutes a burden. It can be financial, it can be relational, it can be mental, it can be physical, emotional, it definitely can be spiritual. But a burden is anything that is hindering your brother or sister's walk in Christ. And notice, who is instructed to bear burdens here? The responsible party for bearing burdens is anyone who is a brother or sister in Christ. Look back to the first verse, to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, and, and where the, that's where this particular line of thought begins. And you'll notice that Paul addresses these instructions to brothers. Now before you ladies draw the conclusion that this means you're exempt from this responsibility, Paul, Paul used the term brothers as, as an overarching term, as, as a term in reference to everyone who is a member of the family of God. Much like other authors, including Paul, would refer to men when they really meant everyone who is a human being, everyone who is a citizen on earth. And so when he addresses this to brothers, what he's implying there is anyone who's within the family of God, this instruction is for you. I think that's important because it's not like Paul said, hey, elders, bear one another's burdens. Hey, deacons, bear one another's burdens. Hey, ministers, bear one another's burdens. No, no, he didn't put it on a limiting category of people. He left it open-ended so that it applied to everyone who bears the name of Christ. And so the responsibility to bear one another's burdens is a responsibility that every member of the body of Christ shares. And one last thought from this passage. Is bearing one, another bur excuse me, is bearing one another's burdens an option? No. Paul specifically said that bearing one another's burdens is how we fulfill the law of Christ. That's his way of saying that this is a command, that this is an expectation, that this is a necessity, that this is in fact an obligation. If you refuse to, to participate in the fulfillment of bearing one another's burdens, then you are refusing to be obedient to Christ. So no, this is not an option. This is an obligation. So in summation, bearing one another's burdens is the fulfillment of Christ's command for one disciple to help another disciple, to help him or her overcome whatever interferes with his or her spiritual progress, or to Put it in more simple terms. Bearing one another's burdens is Christ's call for brothers and sisters to be accountable to one another. Accountable. There is, in fact, in Scripture, this expectation of accountability. We don't like that. 
We don't want to be accountable to anyone. We're adults. We answer to no one, right? That's the American mentality. I don't have to be accountable to anybody anymore. But that's not how the church was designed by Christ. We have an expectation of accountability between one another. Now let's consider for the rest of our time today what that really means. What does accountability to one another in Christ mean? Well, first, accountability means that I care about your hurt. Earlier this year, we conducted a brief study of some specific events in the life of Jesus. And, and through that study, it became apparent that Jesus saw the world through compassion-tinted glasses. In fact, we had one lesson that focused on his compassion. And if you look through the New Testament, through the Gospels in particular, you'll see multiple times where we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion. He meets a leper, and he's moved with compassion to reach out, touch that leper, and heal him. He sees that crowd of 5,000 plus people who have nothing to eat, and he's moved with compassion to take care of them. He encounters a widow who is escorting her son's lifeless body to the grave, and he's moved with compassion to raise that child. He comes across two blind men sitting by a road who request for his assistance in restoring their sight, and he's moved with compassion and fulfills their request. Jesus saw the world through compassion-tinted glasses. Therefore, if I want to love like Jesus loved, as the platinum rule we talked about last week says, then I must see people with problems rather than see people as problems. It's, it's easy to get frustrated with people because people can be very inconvenient, right? They can interrupt our schedule. They can get in the way of our plans. They can create unnecessary stress in our lives. They can bring drama into our lives. People can be very inconvenient. But as followers of Christ, we must put on His glasses so that we'll see what He saw. People with problems rather than people as problems. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 25. Actually, verse 25 and 26. After identifying Christians as members of the body of Christ, he indicated that as members of one another, we are to have the same care for one another. Have the same care for one another. In the very next verse, he indicates that such care means that we are to suffer when one of our members suffer, and we are to rejoice when one of our members rejoice. You know, there, there are two things that stand out to me about the words of Paul here, two implications of what he's saying. The first is that there should be such an intimate connection between you and I that your pain hurts me and your joys uplift me. That's how interconnected we should be. But the other thing that this verse tells me 
is that we should be so intimately connected that I respond accordingly whenever I recognize that you're suffering or that you're rejoicing. I should care about your hurt. And you should care about my hurt. Because we've been instructed to have the same care for one another. And we've been instructed to suffer with one another. Maybe Peter summarized this aspect of accountability best when he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He said, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In other words, I've been instructed, right here in this passage, I've been instructed to be sympathetic, to be tender-hearted, to be humble towards you so that I can be a source of blessing in your life and vice versa. This is accountability, that we care for one another, particularly in our hurts. But accountability is more than that. Accountability also means that I correct you when you err. You can see many examples of correction happening in the New Testament, some of which probably pop into your mind right now. Maybe you think about Priscilla and Aquila correcting Apollos when his teaching was based on limited knowledge. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Maybe you think about uh, Simon when he had that greedy heart, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, and he had to be corrected by Peter and John because of his sinful intent. Or maybe you think about Paul correcting Peter, Galatians chapter 2, for behaving hypocritically. See, you can journey through the New Testament and find occasions where one Christian had to correct another Christian. You can encounter situations where a church is called upon to discipline a member who's erring. These examples reveal an unfortunate reality that there are times when I need to correct you and that you need to correct me. Not only are we given examples of this type of accountability, but we're also given instructions. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, that's our passage for the day. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I want you to notice the verse that immediately precedes it though. The verse that begins the line of thought. Verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6. If anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you be tempted. In other words, before Paul gets to the bear one another's burdens instruction, he starts with a correcting instruction. If we recognize that one of our brothers or sisters is erring, then we have the responsibility to pursue their restoration. 
In that verse, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it places a condition on our efforts. It indicates that we must do so in a spirit of gentleness. That means our motivation must be from love rather than pride. Must be from a tender heart rather than an arrogant one. Must be driven by our desire to help one another get to heaven rather than our desire to prove our own self-righteousness. And it's worth noting that James had something to say on this matter as well. If you look at James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. James said, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Much like Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 James is saying that we have a responsibility to go after a brother or sister in Christ that we know is erring. That's, that's our job assignment. And James presents this process. James presents corrective action as a heroic endeavor. We often avoid correcting other people. Because it's going to involve a confrontation that might be a little uncomfortable. That might make the other person think poorly of us. That, that might wound the relationship just a little bit. Because we don't know how they're going to react. And oftentimes we don't believe it's our business to get involved in their lives. And we fear that we might push them away. But don't all such fears drastically pale in comparison to saving a soul from death? We can't shirk this responsibility. We can't ignore this responsibility because there are souls at stake. And correcting one another is part of the assignment that God gave us when He told us to bear one another's burdens because He put on us an accountable relationship to one another. But you know what? Accountability do doesn't just mean that I, correct you when, when you, that I correct you when you err. It also means that I confess to you when I err. We don't like the previous one. We don't like having to go correct people because it's uncomfortable. And we don't like this one for the very same reason. But in all honesty, if we are living as Christians should, then we should never need correction and we should never need to confess sin. But unfortunately, we do sin. And unfortunately, there are times when we get off of the path we're supposed to be on. And unfortunately, there are times that we're going to need to take ownership and we're going to need to admit that we've sinned. And that means I might have to confess my sin to you. Confessions to others, confession to others is a practice that's largely ignored by Christians. Why? Because confession forces us to be transparent rather than private. And in our culture, we prize privacy. We don't want anybody in our business. 
We want everything in our lives to stay a secret away from everybody else. We walk in the doors of the church building, and when somebody asks, how are you doing? We are trained from a young age to say, I'm fine, and smile real big, even when the world is collapsing around us. I don't know if that is a Western mindset, a Southern mindset, or American mindset. I don't know. But it's not necessarily a biblical one. Because the Bible expects us to be willing to admit that we're struggling, not just with sin, but at anything. The Bible presents this expectation that I'm willing to tell you, that I'm willing to be transparent with you, that I'm willing to take down the walls with you. Do you know why? Because you're my brother or you're my sister in Christ. You're not just some random person off the street or some random group of people on social media. You're my brother and you're my sister. And if there's anybody in the world that I should be able to tell that I'm struggling with something, you're that person. And so accountability means that I must be willing to confess to you when I err. And that's exactly what James tells us to do in James chapter 5 and verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, we are quick to go to this verse to point to the power of prayer. We are happy to quote this verse when we want to encourage prayer for somebody. But we like to skip over the first part, the confess your sins to one another. And admittedly, some of the reason we do that is because some Christians haven't treated other Christians that well when those other Christians have confessed their sin. I remember one occasion that did not happen here, but an individual came forward at the close of a sermon that I preached and confessed that he had a struggle with lust. That's not a public confession you hear very often. But yet it's probably a temptation and a sin that is struggled with more than we want to admit. The man came forward at the close of the sermon, admitted to it, and then afterwards I encountered a lady in the congregation who came up to me and said, I didn't feel comfortable going and talking to him afterwards because I was scared he would lust after me. That's a struggle for me. Because to me, that might be a legitimate concern. I get that. But shouldn't your brother or sister category of life trump that in the moment? Shouldn't the fact that he is burying his soul and admitting to something that's not only sinful but embarrassing and complicated, shouldn't that cause you to want to at least let him know you're going to pray for him? You see, one of the problems we have is we're terrified of the front pew. We're terrified to come up here. 
Because if we come up here, we have to start admitting things that aren't comfortable. And maybe the reason we're terrified of this is because of how the people out here sometimes treat the person who came up here. And so when we talk about confessing to one another when we err, that does necessitate that we also treat one another lovingly when we enter the process of confessing. This is an expectation of Scripture. This is a responsibility that is stated by God. We don't have wiggle room here. God is calling for us to be honest about our struggles in this passage. Because the only way God can help us conquer our sin is if we will, if we will own up to our sin. And one of the primary means He has given us to conquer our sin is the community of believers who are all too familiar with sin themselves. So accountability means that I confess to you when I err. And finally, accountability means that I consider your faith. Let me explain what I mean by this last one. In both Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul addressed the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols because it was a divisive issue in the first century church. Now Paul asserted that eating meat sacrificed to idols was not wrong in and of itself. In Romans chapter 14 and verse 14, he said, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He expounded on his reasoning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4 when he said, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So therefore, he came to the conclusion stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8, that we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So Paul's argument is that because idols aren't real, the food sacrificed to them is not unclean. Despite that fact, Paul goes on to say this in Romans chapter 14, verse 21, that it is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 13, he personally declared that if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I want you to think, if there's nothing wrong with eating meat, then why did Paul say it is good not to eat meat? Why did he say he was willing to give up meat forever? Why did he associate eating meat with a stumbling block. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, Paul calls eating food sacrificed to idols a right or a freedom, depending on which translation you read. A right or a freedom of the one who is mature in faith. In other words, he indicates that the one with a mature faith is the one who understands that nothing is unclean in and of itself. And the one who is mature in the faith is the one who understands that idols aren't real. So the one who is mature in faith is able to eat food sacrificed to idols because their conscience is going to be clean on the matter. So ultimately, the issue for Paul is not about what's the right belief 
in this situation. It's about what's the right behavior in this situation. He downplays the right or freedom the one with mature faith has to eat such food and emphasizes the vulnerability of the one with the weaker faith. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul's point is that just because the maturity of your faith makes you comfortable doing something, doesn't mean that it's wise to do that thing since someone with a less mature faith may misunderstand what you're doing. So even though Paul fully believed that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols, he made it very clear that if you make another stumble or you wound their conscience, then you're in the wrong and you've sinned against Christ. Therefore, the Christian's concern should be not just with what their faith approves, but with what their brother or sister's faith needs. And that's why he instructs Christians in Romans chapter 14 and verse 13 to decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And then in verse 19 he said, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The point is that even though Paul knew there was nothing wrong with eating that meat, he cared more about the effect it had on others and therefore was willing to consider the impact of his actions on their well-being. And what we should learn from the stumbling block subject matter of Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that accountability means that as brothers and sisters in Christ, I must consider the impact of my decisions, what they have on your faith. Are we willing to do that though? Are we willing in this culture to be more Christ-like than we are American? Because the great thing about our culture is it worships freedom. But the dangerous thing about our culture is that it worships freedom. Our faith must include consideration of one another because we're accountable to one another. And that may mean that those with a mature faith have to make some decisions to give up some of their spiritual freedom for the benefit of those with a weaker faith. That's the principle being taught in the stumbling block subject matter. Would you be willing to give up eating meat altogether like Paul? No more steak? No more hamburgers? No more bacon? That's how far Paul was willing to go out of consideration for the faith of his brother in Christ. 
And it kind of reminds me about these two guys that I'm picturing on the screen. I don't know if you recognize them, but on the left side of the screen is Sir Edmund Hillary, the famed British explorer who holds the title of the first man to ascend Mount Everest. On the right side of the picture is a man known by very few people. His name is Tenzing Norgay. He was Sir Hillary's Sherpa guide who ascended Mount Everest with him. In fact, during their, expedi- during their expedition, Hillary slipped on one occasion, sliding into a crevasse. And if it wasn't for Tenzing Norgay securing the line between them, Hillary would not have lived to lay claim to the first man ascending Everest. Tenzing Norgay was asked one time how if it bothered him that all the credit and all the praise for ascending Mount Everest goes to Edmund Hillary. And Tenzing Norgay simply said no. And when asked why that didn't bother him, his answer was simply, mountain climbers help one another. That's just what they do. They help one another. And when we look at the bear one another's burdens passage in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, ultimately what that passage is saying is that Christians help one another in whatever way we can because we're all on this road together. This road to eternal life. This morning, as we continue our study of the one another passages, we come to this one that can be very challenging because it puts on us expectations and responsibilities that at times can be very uncomfortable. But that ultimately are all responsibilities driven by our love for one another. This morning, do you have a burden? Is there a load that you're bearing that is just overwhelming right now? It may be a sin that you just can't get out of your life. It may be a struggle in life that has just brought you to your knees and you don't know if you can handle it anymore. It may be some stress that you're dealing with. It may be some problem in your your work life, your home life. It could be, as I mentioned at the start of this lesson, something that is physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. Do you have a burden? If so, will you let us help you bear it? Because that's what Christians do. This morning, if you have any need to respond to the invitation, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.